Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Before we get started, here are a few questions you can expect to have answered by the end of this episode. First off, will we ever be able to eradicate the use of toxic solvents? How does a farmer's definition of organic differ from that of a chemist? How do you patent a scientific methodology? Can you grow DNA at the push of a button? And why is 99% of our DNA absolutely useless? This and more on today's episode of Abstract. Let's get into it. James Thorpe was born in Montreal, Quebec, and has spent his whole life living here. He finished his Bachelor of Science in Honors Bioorganic Chemistry in 2017 after working under the supervision of Dr. Masad Damha on his Honors Research Project. He continued under the same supervision, starting his PhD in the fall of 2017. His work focuses on developing more environmentally friendly methods for the synthesis of short DNA and RNA chains known as oligonucleotides. Oligonucleotides have extensive applications as therapeutics in diagnostics such as COVID-19 testing and in gene editing. However, current methods for the synthesis of oligonucleotides are expensive and use thousands of liters of toxic solvents, which have detrimental effects on the environment. James's work was the first to demonstrate the synthesis of short oligonucleotides using mechanochemistry under solvent-free conditions, and this work has been published and patented. In his free time, James enjoys playing basketball, working out, snowboarding, and playing video games. When the weather gets too cold in Montreal, he heads south and is an avid scuba diver with numerous certifications and over a hundred logged dives. Wow. I have zero log dives for reference. So without further ado, let's welcome James to the podcast. James, how's it going? I'm good, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here today. This is a, this is a glorious moment in abstract history. Today is episode 30. We made it. We made it. And I'm happy to see that I'm the first chemist here, I think. The first chemist, if not the second chemist, I think maybe the first chemist. So we're definitely gonna have to dive into some dive, which you're good at, into some of the terminology that we just covered in this introduction. So first and foremost, before we do that, you touched briefly on your Bachelor of Science and PhD in the introduction, and the fact that you actually are currently working under the same supervision for both. What actually led you to doing a PhD? Like, when did you know you wanted to follow an academic path like this? Honestly, after working with Dr. Dama, I did, I started doing a summer research project with him first, and then I continued to do my honors research project with him and just seeing the way the project was going. And after that year working for him, there was still so much work to do. And I just wanted to see it through. I wanted to continue working on this project. 
I liked the people I work with. I liked working for Dr. Dama. It just seemed kind of like the natural thing to do. As far as supervisors are concerned, what kind of supervisor is Dr. Masad Damha? Was he very, very detail-oriented and very involved in your work, or was he more of a hands-off kind of guy? Definitely hands-off. For the first year or two that I was working for him, he was actually the chair of the Department of Chemistry at McGill, so he was really busy, and he was definitely hands-off. Like Sometimes we'd go a couple of weeks without any communication, and he kind of just trusts that we're getting our own stuff done our own way. But he was there if we ever needed guidance and or if we were do he's more available now that he's not chair, but definitely hands off and it's kind of like, okay, do this stuff and get back to me. When you got into the degree, did you know to expect that he'd be quite unavailable due to his position? Yeah, when I started for him as an undergrad, he was still pretty busy. Even before COVID-19 hit, we didn't really have regular scheduled meetings. So I kind of knew what to expect. And I like that style of supervision. I, I like to be self-motivated and kind of do my own thing without having him kind of looking over me. Well, that a PhD sounds just right for you. <laughs> There's a lot of solo work involved there. And what is your favorite cheese? My favorite cheese? That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> probably just going to have to go with just like a nice sharp cheddar. Sharp cheddar aged? Yeah, aged, aged, at least a few years. Yeah, you don't like that young cheddar. You want a nice, mature, mature cheddar. You like your the cheddar older, old. the better. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. So it sounds like you're really built for a PhD. That's excellent, and you've got a rock solid supervisor who is now more available than ever, which is great as you're getting deep into the research, which we are now going to slowly start diving into, okay? I have not been certified as a diver, so we got to start diving slowly. All right, sounds good. There, there were a couple of sides to this introduction here. There's the environment side, and then there's the chemistry side. Which one are you most focused on? Well, I mean, yeah, you can look at it from two kind of ways. There's kind of like the green chemistry point of view, and that's definitely an aspect of my work. But like first and foremost, I do organic chemistry and we talk about mechanochemistry in the intro, but that's more of a, a tool that I use. It's not really my, my field of expertise. I'm more into the chemistry and not so much the environmental, but like the aim is to alleviate this issue in oligonucleotide synthesis. I see. So you've identified a problem and you're using your expertise in chemistry to solve it. Exactly. Okay. So you already dropped mechanochemistry. Could you define that for us? Yeah. So when we think about traditional chemistry, you think about just like that mad scientist in the lab, mixing two flasks together, two liquids. That's what everybody thinks of when they think of chemistry, right? Mechanochemistry mm -hmm. kind of takes that and throws it on its head where instead of having liquids reacting, we're actually doing all of the reactions in the solid state pretty much. So we have these, these, what they're called milling jars, and it's like a, a stainless steel, or it could be made out of Teflon or various other materials. It's just a little vessel, and we add the chemicals in as solids, as powders, for example, put it into this milling jar with a, a milling ball as well, and close it up and basically put it into what's the equivalent of a high-tech scientific paint shaker called a vibration ball mill. And it just shakes the vessel at a set frequency for a set amount of time. And you can have chemical reactions happen that way, completely without the use of any solvent. Where instead of in, in solution, we have 
diffusion and thermodynamics taking control of the reaction and we have heat applied to the solution, now you have this mechanical kinetic energy giving the energy to provide chemical reactions. And, you know, we don't have any solvent, so that helps for uh, the environment. And sometimes we see reactions that we've never seen before using mechanochemistry. Okay, so are solvents inherently bad? Not all solvents are bad. A lot of reactions, and one of the main principles of green chemistry is to use not so harmful solvents like water. You can do a lot of chemical reactions in water and that has no negative impact, but there are a lot of toxic solvents and flammable solvents that have to be disposed of in some way. And typical organic chemistry reactions use organic solvents, which are generally not so good for the environment. So funny, because organic solvent to me sounds like the kind of thing that would be great for the environment. I just bought some organic bell peppers. I'm going to make some pizza tonight. Am I doing the wrong thing here? Should I not be going organic? No, organic's good, but it's just the organic for a chemist is very different uh, than organic for, uh, for a farmer, for example. How does organic differ then for a farmer versus a chemist? That's a good question. So organic, I guess when you think of for a farmer organically grown, uh, I think it typically just refers to the use of pesticides or the lack thereof, I guess. But for organic, for a chemist, has to do with organic chemistry, which isn't necessarily to do with life or anything. It's just basically the chemistry of carbon hydrogen compounds. Those are the main backbones of organic compounds, carbon and hydrogen. And then of course, the, the less common, but still very common in organic compounds are oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, so on. So you're not necessarily working with living organisms, but the building blocks of them. Exactly. Organic chemistry just refers to the chemistry of carbon chains. Carbon chains. Okay. I, I think from what I remember from my organic chemistry class I took five years ago, one of, I mean, carbon chains can form things like hexane and octane, which are things we actually find in gasoline. These aren't things that I'd obviously want to drink. So I guess that maybe helps br bridge this gap between organic farming and organic chemistry, where these things are very different, just carbon-based stuff versus the lack of pesticides. Very different use of the same term. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just a historical definition that origin, the original definition of organic chemistry came from that, but then somebody synthesized what was typically thought of as an organic compound from inorganic starting materials. So then that kind of definition was eliminated. Hmm. Interesting. So in terms of what you're doing in the lab, you're synthesizing short DNA and RNA chains. These aren't, from what I know, yeah. just straight up carbon chains. DNA has got a lot more going on in there than just carbon and hydrogen. That's, that's for sure true. The, the DNA backbone and RNA backbone, it has phosphorus in it. The bases of DNA and RNA contain nitrogen, but in general, these kinds of compounds still fall under the general field of organic chemistry okay. because they still have a major carbon is the major constituent. Okay. So we're purely just going based on the proportions here. Carbon is still a very important part of DNA, which makes sense because we call ourselves carbon-based life. And if our life is based off of our DNA to a certain degree, if those are the instructions, then I guess carbon would have to be something important. Yeah, for sure. I don't know about you, but I am starving. I am famished for your feedback. That's right. 
you. I want you to send me an email at abstractcast at gmail.com. That is all I want for Christmas. Uh, At the end of this episode, or better yet, right now, you can pause, open up that email account, and tell me everything that is on your mind right now. That's how we improve the show, for you and for everybody else. So do yourself and everybody a favor and tell me exactly what you're thinking. And thank you. So what is it about DNA and RNA or the short DNA and RNA chains that are particularly of interest to you? And how does that factor into this environmentally conscious way of synthesizing compounds? Yeah, so I think we really have to talk about what we can use them for. Because most science, there's a lot of science that's done basic research, but my research is very application-based. What is the purpose of it? it's to alleviate this issue in the industry. So we have to think about what can we use short DNA and RNA chains for? And it's really the main thing right now is for therapeutics. So there's a few drugs that have been approved recently. I think there's 10 or 10 or 11. One was just approved in the EU last week that are short DNA or RNA chains and they're usually used to treat rare genetic diseases that often big pharmaceutical companies don't go after because it's just not necessarily as profitable and they're hard to target. We have this therapeutic application. And like you said in my intro, the way that we make these DNA and RNA chains chemically uses thousands of liters of solvent. It's really my supervisor, Dr. Dama, went to a factory where they make them once and he said that they had like one of those fuel trucks full of a, a toxic solvent known as acetonitrile, just pumping it into the factory, like a fuel line, like a fire hose almost. Wow. Um, so it's a, re- a real issue to be able to synthesize these. Do you believe that it is possible to eventually completely eradicate the use of toxic solvents? Or are there certain kinds of reactions that we have to produce that require these toxic solvents? Like, do you think that the science can get to a point where we can actually, where they'll become obsolete? I don't know if they'll ever become completely obsolete. There's some things that this mechanochemical technique can do better than traditional solution-based chemistry, but it's still gaining ground. Mechanochemistry is relatively new discipline within chemistry but I don't think we'll ever truly eliminate the use of solvents because there's so many well-established reactions and there's so much well-established chemistry that it would be really hard to eliminate everything. Aren't you currently trying to overthrow some well-established chemistry yourself? That's true. We're, We're not necessarily trying to overthrow it, I would say. I think we're looking kind of more to work in parallel I'd say, because the, the current way of making DNA and RNA, undoubtedly, it's extremely efficient, but the major dra- drawback is that it uses a lot of solvent. So our technique might be in conjunction with the current ways that we make these oligonucleotides. Okay, so you're not necessarily competing with the pre-existing methodology. You're just trying to show that there's an alternative that works potentially just as well and is less environmentally harmful. Exactly. And then our, our goal right now, I don't think is obviously to completely replace the current methodologies, but just supplement them and improve them by using our techniques also. Okay. 
Have you specifically patented the technique or is this a technique that has been developed over many, many years in the lab and you're just kind of picking up where it left off? This is me from start to end. So when I started as an undergrad, I was working on this. So it's been, it's been a long journey. It's been about, I guess, three or four years now that I've been working on this. But yeah, the, the patent is split between me, another grad student who is working on it also, my supervisor, and uh, our collaborator. Okay, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm, I've always been so curious to know about what it's like to get something patented. I used to dream when I was a, a young boy, I dreamt of having an occupation as an inventor, which I realized is not necessarily just a job. It's, it just kind of comes part and parcel with being an intelligent person who's also into you know innovation in whatever field they're in. So what was that process like? Can you kind of walk me through in, in a, a, a short period of time here, just kind of quickly running me through what it's like from start to finish to get something patented? So yeah, basically when we started getting some nice results and we were like, okay, like this actually is going somewhere. My supervisor was like, okay, let's just patent this. Since we work at McGill, we have to go through McGill first. Anything invented at McGill, you have to inform them of it. And McGill basically had the decision to say either, okay, we can back you on this, but then we get 20% of the patent right off the bat, or we're not going to back you. You're on your own, do whatever you want with it. And there's advantages to both. If McGill, which they did happen to, they decided to, to back us. So they have 20% of the patent as well, but they paid then from there, all the fees to the patent lawyers to prepare this patent document, which is extremely technical, uh, hard to prepare, and it costs a lot of money for a, a patent lawyer to do all that work. So after we did that, we had basically one year from then, which we had the, the initial filing to file the, the full patent, but then it got extended. I haven't actually heard anything about it in a while, but I'm pretty sure we've extended the initial patent until May of 2021, and then we'll have the full patent, I think, and that'll last 20 years. I don't know exactly which countries it's been patented in, but it's a pretty interesting process for sure to go through. Yeah, that's very cool. So you basically had nothing to do with the actual drafting of the patent then. You just got to shoot that off to the lawyers and have them deal with it. I did a lot of the writing of the experimental procedures, but like the introduction and like defining chemicals, like you have to define, okay, you have this chemical with X molecule here or Y molecule here or Z molecule here under these conditions. We don't know. I don't know the exact definitions and exactly how we have to specify it. Like you want to make the patent general enough that people can't try to infringe on it but you also want to make it specific enough that it's actually applicable as a patent. So there's a bit of an art to it. And it's also difficult because we're patenting a methodology, whereas some pharmaceutical companies may have patented a specific compound for a specific use. We're patenting a whole process of doing something. And then it's easy to see how somebody might come in and say, okay, well, you did this process. I just added this solvent, this compound, this chemical, and it improves your, your process by 20 times. I'm just going to patent that. So you have to kind of be very specific with how you word things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally get that. I like that balancing point between being too general and being too specific, kind of ending up causing problems for you later. 
Okay. Yeah. So this process then, this is, this is the golden key here. This is what we're trying to get at. Is this process describable to a lay audience right now, right here? I think so, but I think we might have to, to go back a couple of steps because when we think about DNA, like what do you think of DNA? If I just say DNA, what do you think of? I'm thinking of the double helix. I've got the, the nucleotide bases, which come in pairs. You know, A attaches to T, C attaches to G. I could keep going just because I've, I've taken some biology courses, but I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, so like we have this bead on a string kind of model for DNA, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's this long strand of DNA and each base is like a bead on this string and each base is a different bead. And in our cells, obviously, we have enzymes and proteins that synthesize DNA and RNA, but we can actually synthesize DNA and RNA chemically, like how I'm doing it. So my method, you basically have to think about the, the chemistry involved, where we know DNA is linked through the, the five prime and three prime orientation, right? Um, if, if you remember from your, your bio class. I might remember that. What does the five prime, three prime refer to exactly? So each bead basically of the DNA sequence is a nucleotide. And the nucleotide is composed of a sugar, ribose, or deoxyribose in the case of DNA, the, the base, the nitrogenous base, A, G, C, or T, and we also have the phosphate group. So there's different positions of the sugar, different carbon numbers basically. The base is linked at carbon one or one prime of the sugar, and the phosphate groups are linked at the five prime position and the three prime position. Okay, so this is all about the structure. Yeah, so when we're doing chemistry, we have these reactive positions at five prime and three prime. So we have to selectively grow the chain of the DNA sequence in one direction. So a big concept in chemistry is, is called protecting groups, where you basically add on a specific chemical group that protects a reactive part of the molecule and makes it so it doesn't react any further. So it's, it's really all about these protecting group strategies where we, we selectively protect different parts of the molecule and then have the reaction take place at the parts that we want it to take place. Like a molecular umbrella. Yeah, kind of. We, we protect at the, the places that are not of interest to us. But for my process, basically, we have the protected nucleotide of one end with a, a free uh, reactive position. And then we add the other one in both as solid powders, like I said, into that, that milling jar. We have a chemical activator, basically, that allows them to, to come together. And then we just shake it 30 minutes and... That's it. That's how it goes. You just you just shake them up and they just do their thing. <laughs> shake shake and bake, basically. Shake and bake, baby. Okay, just making DNA. That's so so great. Yeah, you know I mean it, it, that's a simple that's a simple way. I mean, after the reaction is done, is you know we have to purify it and you know, do other stuff with it and, and keep going. It sounds like something that I find in a spice rack in, in an IGA or something. You know, you got your paprika yeah. and then you've got your you know, shake and bake DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very cool. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet. So if you're interested in sponsoring 
this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. Whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all from me for now. Let's head back to the episode. So this is new. I, I didn't know that you could just react solids like powders together by just vigorously shaking them. Sounds rough for the solids. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of an abrasive technique for sure, but that's one of the things we can kind of fine tune. We can choose the frequency of the shaking or we can choose the material of the solid to deliver different types of energy based on the masses. But yeah, you know, when we think of typical chemistry, we have just that flask stirring, right? And one of the limiting factors typically in solution is, is diffusion. The rate of diffusion of chemicals, because we have to have basically impacts between molecules for the reaction to happen. But when we have this, this vigorous shaking, it basically is mixing it all. So we have a lot of collisions of chemicals. We have that energy input to, to form chemical bonds. That's so cool. Yeah, because you mentioned kinetic energy before. Is, is it the kinetic energy that's kind of replacing the solution or the solvent rather? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but there's definitely different types of forces that are taking place within the milling vessel. We have like just straight impact on the ends where the ball is just colliding with the ends of the jar, but also along the edges of the jar, we have like more of a shearing force. So I'm not exactly sure how those different types of forces play in. It's pretty well studied, but I'm definitely not an expert in that. There's a whole physical system happening inside this shake and bake vessel. Exactly. But, but for me, as an organic chemist, it's more of just a tool to do a reaction in a different way. Right. So all of this was some background so we understand a little bit more what's happening at the molecular level in DNA. My question was, what is this process? I just want to know what this process is all about. Is there anything, any more information that we need before we can dive into that? I could tell you about how the, the standard for synthesizing DNA and RNA kind of works, and that might help a bit. So, and to that also will explain why it uses so much solvent. Okay. So okay. The, the typical method is known as solid phase synthesis. You have like a solid bead. It's usually silica, so like a glass bead. And imagine on the bead, we have attached to it one little nucleotide. It's just attached, floating along there. And so this solid bead, it's not soluble in any solvents. We put it in a machine and we basically just flow solvent with our chemicals over it. And it just flows over it and we'll add the next nucleotide. And then we just wash it with solvent, wash away any byproducts or leftover chemicals that haven't reacted. And then we add the next nucleotide, just flow it, flow it over the, the solid and then wash it away. And we keep doing that. We, every step you have to wash it and wash it with solvent. So you get rid of any unreacted side products. I'm picturing this kind of like, I don't know if, if you're or if you're listening right now, have ever made a candle by just dipping a long piece of string into wax. And so you dip it in, like, like it's like liquid wax. You dip it in, you, you lift it out, and then it air dries. You dip it in again, and it adds another layer. And if you do this like 150 times, you end up getting a full candle because these layers kind of go on top of each other. This, this cascading of nucleotides. So you're kind of building one by one. That's what you're talking about, right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's definitely kind of like that. We just wash it away, add the next nucleotide of the sequence that we want, then wash everything away, add the next one, and keep going until we get to the desired sequence. Okay. Seems wasteful. It, it's wasteful on the one hand, but on the other hand, since we do wash everything away, it's really easy to purify our final product at the end. Because any side products, any unreacted chemicals are just washed away. We don't have to deal with them. It's just thrown away. We just take that glass bead at the end and it has pretty much already pure product. Wow. So this is the way things have been done for a very long time. This, this is the, definitely the gold standard. This is done on an industrial level. This is done on a benchtop level. You can buy, actually at McGill was developed the, the first automated DNA synthesizer. It's a benchtop machine. You plug in the sequence of the DNA you want, and it'll make it for you. Whoa, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's weird to think about, but people, we call it, you know, it's called the gene machine. The gene machine. Oh, it's so good. I'm, I'm picturing just like, you know, you're, you're a chemist, and you wake up in the morning, and regular human beings are just clicking a button on their coffee pot, and they're getting some some nice drip filter coffee and then and then you wake up and then you stretch your arms out and then you're just press a button and then you, you make genes yeah pretty much not not quite full genes but short oligonucleotides excellent the uh, short shorts of the gene world exactly the, just just enough to get a biological effect but yeah. if not you were, quite a full if gene if you were a kind of pants what kind of pants would you be Definitely sweatpants, right off the bat. Sweatpants. That's, that's all I wear. <laughs> so it's, I'm just riding, riding the grad school, no dress code wave. I, I wear sweatpants pretty much every day. I'm going to live it out as long as I can. <laughs> okay, honestly, it, my best guess might have been like slacks at this point. I only got you from like belly button up, so it's anybody's game. No, I'm in the I'm in the sweats. Okay, cool, man. I wanted to put jeans on for this, but I guess we weren't thinking the same. <laughs> Sorry. All good. This is just my natural. You are forgiven. I want you to be in your natural habitat. Okay, wow. So, oh my goodness, you just deal with machines that create genes. I'm curious, if you went into my body and like, you know, zoomed into a cell and zoomed into the nucleus and found an actual piece of DNA, that would be DNA that's part of my DNA strands and that are the instructions to build me. I'm not going to go the route of, of like cloning here. That's a little bit too low hanging fruit, but does all DNA do something or can you just like click no. that? Like, can you make that gene machine just put a bunch of random nucleotides together and then it'll just be a useless piece of organic matter? For sure, you can definitely do that. Not like it's something like ninety-nine percent of our genome is non-coding. Doesn't it's not genes. It's just random or semi-random bases. But yeah, you can just put in any sequence that you want, it, and it might not have any relevance to anything. You said ninety-five percent of our genome doesn't code for anything. I think it's ninety-nine percent actually. Ninety-nine percent <laughs> of our genome is is non-coding. I think it's, it's some, so... somewhere in that range. Oh, we're talking about waste in terms of like using too much solvent here. Our DNA is just a waste machine. It's just a waste of space. What are we... Yeah. Well... Why, why are we only using... I mean, okay. So I've already been over this 
a number of times with various guests on the podcast who have a background in neuroscience. We've dispelled the myth that we only use 10% of our brain or whatever it is. No, if you're listening right now, we use all of our brain, just not all at once. If you were using all of your brain at once, that would be like you having a seizure. It would be overactive. That would be very bad. Yeah. We use all parts of our brain at different points. But you're saying it isn't like we're using all the parts of our DNA at different points. We legitimately are using 1% of our DNA. What if we used 100% of our DNA? Then we'd get, a, we'd get a big, big mess because some of it will just, it doesn't code for proteins. You know, it's just, it's just kind of a jumbled mess. And I'm, I'm not molecular biologist or an evolutionary biologist. But I think one of the reasons why we have so much extra DNA is, then it's just, if random mutations occur, it's less likely to occur within a gene that will affect us, first of all. And I'm sure there's other a lot of other reasons, but I don't know why we, we evolved to be like that. That's actually an incredible point. Here I am thinking that 99% of our DNA is just not really doing much for us. But actually, it's kind of just like, it's making me think of the myelin sheath, which is this kind of like enveloping layer of fat that wraps around axons, which connects cells in the brain. And it actually protects them. Not only makes connections faster, but actually protects it. It's just kind of this this like extra stuff that kind of helps with what I'll call the, the more kind of front lines of cognition and things like that. So 99% is just sitting there so that if mutations do happen, it's actually not really going to affect us very much. Yeah, I think that's one of the leading beliefs, but I'm sure there are others out there, but I don't really know, to be honest. Okay, that's fair enough. So I'd like to ask you just one final question. This has been absolutely eye-opening. I never really dove into chemistry like a scuba diver would dive into the ocean. But today has felt like the first of hopefully many times I will do that. So thank you for enlightening myself. And hopefully if you're listening, you too feel the same way. So the final question, if you've listened to recent episodes, you will probably know what this is about. I wonder if you've prepared. Here we go. There are a thousand people listening to you right now. What do you tell them? I tell them just... It doesn't matter what you do with your time, just find something that's passionate about and work hard. If you work hard at it, good things will come to you. Short and sweet. I love it. That's it. Just, Just work hard. If you were talking to your biggest idol, what would you tell them? My biggest idol? I don't even know who that is. Um... I'd, I'd probably ask them, what advice do you have for me? <laughs> okay, good, good, all right, that's fair. I, I should have asked if you had an idol and who that was before we did that. Um, I don't know, up? maybe Michael Jordan, just that, just that mentality. The Michael Jordan mentality is, is big yeah. for me. I'm a big basketball fan and okay. him and, and Kobe Bryant, just the way that they were laser focused, extremely determined, extremely hard workers something I really respect about them. How much money would you pay to be able to snag a piece of Kobe Bryant's DNA? (laughs) It's just, it's, he's the same as all of us. It's all in the mindset. To be continued, maybe we're going to talk about how mindset comes from genes. I don't know if we don't have time for that today, unfortunately, but What we do have time for is closing remarks. So I just want to say thank you again so much, James, for coming on the show. This was absolutely fascinating. And like I said, eye-opening. You can see my eyes are both open right now. So thanks again. Do you have any any parting words? Uh, Thanks for having me. It's been really cool to talk to you about my research. 
And if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk about uh, DNA and RNA and chemical synthesis. Awesome. So I'll make sure to slide your email into the description of this episode then. Great. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Take it easy. This is Abstract. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.